Take your Bibles out once again and turn with me to Exodus 20. Exodus 20 as we continue our series on the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This morning we'll be looking at the Sixth Commandment, the Sanctity of Life. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God before me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me, And obey my commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is given you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Father, I pray in the words of Revelation 2 and 3 that you would open our ears today that we might hear what your Spirit is saying to your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget my very first funeral as a young pastor. It was July of 1989, and it was like a script out of a modern-day murder mystery involving abduction, kidnapping, and violent murder. There was a family in our church that had two daughters, and both of these young ladies had recently got out, gotten out on their own. One had gotten a job at a restaurant in the city of Roanoke, Virginia. Often at night, she would stay with an elderly lady. 
at that elderly lady's house, a neighboring town to Roanoke. Well, on this particular night, she never arrived at the woman's home. She didn't show up for work the next day, which was very much unlike her. Her family couldn't locate her. Her friends couldn't locate her. Finally, her purse was found at the gas station six miles down the mountain road from our church. There was an outdoor vending machine area at that gas station and her purse was placed there literally at the bottom of the hill right below her younger sister's apartment. Inside her purse were her vials of insulin and her needles. She was a very severe diabetic. Days and weeks went by. Well, at the supper table in July of 1989, my telephone rang. It was a request that I come to the sister's apartment, again, the one that overlooked the gas station where the purse had been found. And when I got there, all the family was gathered together. You see, it had hit the news that evening that a woman's body had been found in a shallow grave Uh, Between where we were and Roanoke, Virginia, right off of Highway 220, there was a farmer walking his fence line and he had spotted this woman's body in a shallow grave. Well, when I got there, as you can only imagine, the family was pacing around. They were nervous. They were absolutely beside themselves, crying and pacing and praying. The medical examiner had come and gotten the body and they were running tests throughout the night to see if it was Brenda or not. And then finally, right before our Sunday morning service that morning, uh, I I had been with the family up till about 4 a.m. And right before our service, we got news that it was indeed the body of Brenda. All of the suspicion turned to a young man she had been dating. She had started seeing someone else and it appeared to be a case of jealousy by the first boyfriend. But as it finally turned out, it was not the old boyfriend. It was the new boyfriend who showed up as the prime suspect. On the night in question, he had kidnapped her and murdered her. I'm not sure that a motive has ever been discovered. Last I heard, there's never been enough hardcore evidence to bring about a conviction, even though the police officers knew that they had gotten their man. It's a family that's never received a resolution to to the matter. Folks, murder is tragic, obviously. It is the premature end to a human life. But not only does it impact that life, but it impacts the lives of all the family members and the friends. Now, the sixth commandment is is the shortest, or one of the shortest in the Hebrew. It is only two words, literally, don't murder. That's it. This commandment forbids the taking of human life in an intentional, violent way. 
You shall not unlawfully murder would be a good translation. Now we could also say that murder is satanic. You may wonder why I'm saying that. Jesus said that, remember? In John chapter 8, in his conflicts with the religious leaders, he said, the reason that you want to murder me is because you are of your father, the devil, who has been a murderer from the beginning. Now folks, first of all this morning, I want you to jot down the premise behind the command. What we're to understand is that life is sacred. God created human life. In Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 the scripture says that that God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and then in Psalm 139 beginning in verse 13 David said for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And so behind every life is the creative act of a sovereign God. Folks, your life is not an accident. The life of the person next to you is not an accident. God created your life. Life is a gift from God. According to Psalm 139 that I read a moment ago, the scripture says that God has an ordained number of days in mind for each person even before we live our very first day. Murder interrupts God's ordained days for that life. Murder does what only God has the right to do. He gives life and he's the one who can legitimately take life. Well not only is life sacred but it's also special because God has a plan for each life remember what he told Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1 5 he said before I formed you in the womb I knew you and before you were even born I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations And so to murder someone means not only do we interrupt their number of days, but we interrupt God's plan and purpose for that individual. Now we could say a lot more about that, but let's move on. Secondly, I want you to see the prohibition in the commandment. What the commandment applies to. Now in a moment we're going to talk about what the commandment does not apply to. But first of all let's cover what it does apply to. 
Obviously, the prohibition is against the unlawful taking of human life. And so, first of all, we can say that it forbids murder. The sixth commandment is intended to protect and preserve the sanctity of human life. And it also preserves God's sovereignty over both life and death. Jesus Christ is Lord over both life and death. He is the originator and he is the completer of human life. Murder is the intentional taking of another human life, whether in a fit of rage, rage at the moment, or in a premeditated fashion. You know, we, we sadly live in a day where decades ago, Pope John Paul II referred to us as being in a culture of death. Think of how chilling those words are. A culture of death. According to the American Psychological Association, by the time the average child finishes elementary school, he or she will have watched 8,000 televised murders and 100,000 acts of violence. By the time they graduate from high school, they have witnessed 80,000 murders. Now, what is so disturbing about this is the way it affects people. In 1998, the American College of Forensic Psychiatry conducted a comprehensive review of scientific studies on the relationship between violence on the screen and violence in real life. Out of 1,000 studies, more than 980 of those 1,000 established a definite link between violence that we see on the screen and violence in real life. A man by the name of David Grossman is not surprised at all. He is a retired military psychologist and he is a recognized expert on teaching people to overcome their reluctance to kill. You see, the army can't have soldiers that are reluctant to kill. And so he's one that trains soldiers to overcome that natural resistance. He was shocked to realize that children who watch TV violence and play violent video games are subjected to the very same methods of conditioning and desensitization that the army uses to train soldiers. He said, and I quote here, we are teaching our children how to kill and we should not be surprised when they do. End of quote. One ancient rabbi stated that the act of murder was not only a sin against the victim but also of all of his or her future generations that will now not exist. Only God knows the number of lives that have been wiped out even in the case of a single murder. 
So obviously the sixth command forbids murder. Secondly, it forbids suicide. The taking of one's own life is just as wrong. It is, after all, the murder of self. It is a sin against the God who gave you life. It is a sin against your own body. It is a sin against your family. If a person takes their own life, they will surely have to answer to God for that. Now, occasionally as a pastor, this is one that I'm called upon to deal with. There used to be a conviction popularized in Roman Catholic theology that suicide was a sin for which you could not be forgiven and the person who killed themselves would automatically go directly to hell. Now, there's been some different spins on that, different reasons given. And, you know, they want to talk about mortal sins versus venial sins with murder and suicide being mortal sins that you cannot be forgiven of and that you'll go straight to hell for. Now, folks, let me say, though, that while suicide is definitely sin, it is not given in Scripture as the unpardonable sin. Now, for one thing, I I, I think we could do a whole entire message on the security of the believer. Sometimes called the preservation of the saints. Beyond a doubt, I believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved. That if somebody's genuinely saved, they will not lose their salvation. Some of the faulty reasoning about suicide sending a person to hell is that you can't ask forgiveness after you kill yourself. And so they say you you automatically go to hell because you can't ask forgiveness for it afterwards. But I want you to think about the absurdity of, of that reasoning. Based on that argument, if you leave here today on your way home and there's sin in your heart and let's say you're pulling out onto the road and you and your mate get in a fight and you say wrong things, sinful things and then somebody T-bones you and kills, slams into your car and, and kills you then you would automatically go directly to hell. You know, I would assume that Virtually every Christian who dies probably dies with some kind of unconfessed sin in their life. Because let's keep in mind, sin is not only sins of commission, but sins of omission. Failing to give God the glory that is due His name. And so again, my guess is that every Christian who dies probably dies with some kind of unconfessed sin in his heart or mind. Also, are we forgiven simply because we spend hours every single day making sure that we have confessed every single little sin that we can think of? No. Because, again, you would have sin that you had not even thought of. Now, am I saying that it's not important to confess your sin? That's not what I'm saying at all. 1 John 1.9 tells us 
of the importance of confessing our sin. But my salvation and your salvation is based on Jesus Christ. It is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in and through Jesus Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. Our fellowship with God is impacted by unconfessed sin. But our relationship with God is not lost by unconfessed sin. And so if a person was a genuine believer, then suicide does not send them to hell. Now somebody naturally asks, can a genuine believer take their own life? And my answer to that is yes. It shouldn't be the case, but it can be. Remember, people go through all sorts of things that in a weak moment, there's no telling what might be going on in their life. They may genuinely have something wrong with them and wrong with their thinking. Now folks, please do not, do not go out of here and say that your pastor rationalized away the sin of suicide. That is absolutely not my intent at all. It is sin. I want to be clear of that. It is sin. It is murder of self. Plain and simple. Only God has the right to take your life. I'm only saying that don't presume that you understand what may be going through somebody else's heart and mind when they do that. They may not even be in the right state of mind. Let me also say that if I'm talking to somebody today that might be considering this, please talk to somebody. Please get help. With 100% certainty, I can say on the authority of God's Word that suicide is not God's will. Do not buy into the devil's lie that things in your life will never get any better. Do not, do not carry out a permanent action or a permanent solution to temporary problems. No matter how bad or how severe your problems are, there are people who stand ready to help. Please get help well the sixth command also forbids abortion there's no pretty way around it abortion is murder plain and simple I like the bumper sticker even though I despise bumper sticker theology but I like the bumper sticker that says it's a child not a choice you see, the left has framed it that those who are pro-life are somehow or another anti-choice. But that's flawed from the get-go. It's not a matter simply of choice versus anti-choice. Rather, it is a situation of life versus death. Here again, if you have had an abortion, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And we stand ready to help. 
I want anybody to know who has been down that road, there, there's not a pastoral staff member that we have who's going to throw rocks at you. Because once it's happened, all any of us are going to try to do is help you. But I want you to think about something. Just because the laws of the land may allow something does not mean that God's law allows it. Biologists and scientists and doctors will tell you, just as Dr. C. Everett Koop once said, that life begins at conception. He said every medical professional and every biologist knows that life begins at conception. And folks, this is one of the very reasons why those who provide abortions do not want a young lady who's considering an abortion to see an ultrasound. Because studies have shown that in at least 90% of the cases, in 9 out of 10 young ladies, if they can see an ultrasound of their child, they will not choose abortion. It's a child. It's not a choice. Now, another flawed bit of logic are those who say, but it's my body. No, it's not. Your body belongs to the Lord. You belong to God. Your body is to be a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. I mentioned Psalm 139 a moment ago. There the scripture points out how God is weaving together the baby inside their mother's womb. The scripture even talks about it being a child before the body parts come clearly into focus. King David said, when, when my body was still yet this unformed substance, you ordained all of my days. Now, folks, let me add something important here. When we study the Ten Commandments, there is something known as the two-sided rule. You may have never heard that phrase before in Bible interpretation, hermeneutics. But what it means is that we are to look for the positive side of the commandment. The commandments are purposely stated in the negative. Why? Because we need negatives. We need boundaries. We need thou shalt nots. But there is a positive side behind each commandment. When we talk about something like abortion, let's mention some applications in the positive that the church has not always been very good at. And it continues to be a learning curve for the church. The church needs to help young ladies to keep their babies. We need to provide help. We need to help with adoptions. We need to help with foster care. We need to help those financially who cannot afford to have the baby. There are so many ways that we can be redemptive in this regard. And there's people in our church who stand ready to help. I think of Ruth Randall. I think of David and Karen Smith. I think of many others in our church who are involved with our local crisis pregnancy centers. 
Some may want to give money. Some may want to give time. Some may even want to open their family and their home to receiving a child. If you want to help out in this area, either myself, other pastoral staff members, any of these individuals in the church involved with these crisis pregnancy centers stand ready to help. Well, another thing it forbids is euthanasia and assisted suicide. For the very same reasons that abortion is wrong, we could say the same thing about euthanasia. There's five countries in the world where euthanasia is legal. In some countries, it's become legal to line up physician-assisted suicide. We've seen several of those cases in the news. By the way, unfortunately, physician-assisted suicide is also legal in six states right here in America. Again, just like it's wrong to interfere with God's sovereignty over life at the beginning of life, it is also wrong, it is sinful to interfere with God's sovereignty over life at the end of life. Now, I realize this one can be difficult. We now have the science where we can keep a body breathing and a heart beating long past the person's natural life. I would caution against keeping a loved one alive on machines when they're basically already gone. If we let nature take its course, what's going to happen to that person? They're going to pass. A lot of times it's that the family members just can't let go. But folks, let's remember that if it's a believer, what they have waiting for them on the other side. I like what Dr. Willis said on one occasion. He said, you know, Scott, we do a lot of praying as a church to keep Christians out of heaven. What do you mean by that? Here's somebody about to die and we're, they're elderly, they've lived a full life or they're, they're terminally ill and we're saying, God, please give them more time with us. We need to be willing to let them go. Now, also what I'm not saying here, I'm not saying refuse basic care where that basic care can help. Generally, when I'm asked, I tell families not to refuse nutrition, which is a basic necessity for any life, but also know when medical and and machine assistance needs to stop. I realize it's a balancing act. Personally, I wouldn't want to artificially hasten the end of a life. And I also wouldn't want to artificially lengthen the end of life. Now, that is a real broad stroke that I've just painted with. Please understand that. There's all kinds of difficult circumstances and choices that families have to make. Maybe the key word is, though, artificial, when we are artificially either ending or lengthening life. We need to step back and 
examine what we're doing. Well, let's talk about what it does not apply to. In this sixth commandment where where we're told, don't murder. What can we say that that does not? When we look at the full counsel of Scripture, what does it not apply to? And first of all on that list, it does not apply to capital punishment. When Noah stepped off the ark after the flood and God was beginning all over again with the human race, do you remember what God told Noah in Genesis 9-6? He said, and I quote here, Whoever sheds the blood of any man, by man shall his blood be shed, for man is made in the very image of God. There are about two dozen verses and situations in the Old Testament where God laid down certain occasions and regulations whereby capital punishment was to be carried out. Now, it may initially sound counterintuitive, but the the death penalty was actually given to preserve life, not destroy life. It was to serve as a deterrent. It was also a matter of justice, but in addition, it was to be carried out swiftly and it was to be a deterrent to others in the community. It was also a power that was given to the community. It was not a power that was given to any one individual. Now, somebody says, yes, pastor, but but aren't you quoting the Old Testament here? Well, let's talk about the New Testament. In the book of Romans, Romans 13. In Romans 13, Paul instructs the church that one of the powers that God has given to the state is the power to take up the sword in punishing criminals. The power of capital punishment. But somebody says, aren't human governments imperfect? Yes, they are. And they have always been imperfect. And so great care's got to be taken in this. Yet God still prescribed capital punishment under certain scenarios. You see, murder strikes against God too. God cares so much about human life Human life bears his image that he says if somebody takes a life, they are to have their blood shed because man is made in my image. And so murder, unlawful murder, is not only a strike against that individual who becomes the victim, but it is also a blow against God who's made that person in his image. Now this commandment does not address a police officer who is doing his job responsibly in the line of duty and has to unfortunately end up taking a life. Do not apply this sixth commandment to that situation. Now yes, if he killed somebody unjustly, it would apply 
but it does not apply to a life being lost in the line of a police officer's duty. What it also does not apply to is accidental accidents resulting in death. Tragedies happen. Planes crash. Helicopters crash. Skiing accidents happen. On and on we could go with that. God knows that in a fallen world, accidental deaths are going to happen. And so do you remember in the Old Testament what God did to bring a solution to this? He established cities of refuge all over the promised land so somebody who had accidentally killed somebody could flee to one of those cities of refuge until everything could be investigated and everything could be worked out. This commandment also does not apply to the killing of animals. Some groups today want to try and say that this commandment says that nobody should eat meat. That's a misapplication. Now folks, I want to be very clear on something. The Bible teaches humane treatment of animals. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, we are told that the righteous man will take good care and humane care of his animals, whereas the wicked will not. And so, yes, we are to be humane. But this commandment was not given to forbid the killing of animals. Again, God told Noah when Noah stepped off the ark that he had given man animals to eat. And in Mark chapter 7, we're told that Jesus declared all foods to be clean. You see, in the Old Testament, they had certain meats, that certain animals that were unclean and some that were clean. But Jesus declared all foods clean. If you want to argue for a vegetarian diet, then fine. You can argue for a vegetarian diet if you've got certain health convictions about it. But do not try to argue for a vegetarian diet based on the sixth commandment that you should not kill. And by the way, what was in the Old Testament that assumed the killing of animals? That pointed to Jesus. The sacrificial system. So clearly it did not apply to animals. And then one last thing. Just war. There were occasions in the Old Testament where God would lead his people into war against a neighboring people to kill. That does not apply to this commandment. Christians have long defended war under certain conditions. And those conditions have been namely these. It must be carried out first of all by legitimate government. Secondly, it must be for a worthy cause. Thirdly, it must display force proportional to the threat. And lastly, it must be carried out against soldiers and not civilians. But it doesn't apply to just war. Now lastly, let's talk about the scope of the commandment. The scope. 
In the New Testament, what did Jesus do with all of the commandments? What level did he take it down to? Did Jesus just deal with the action and the action alone? Motives. He dealt with the heart, right? This is what is called the inside-out rule of looking at commandments. What this means is that each commandment covers inward attitudes as well as outward actions. Jesus didn't leave the matter with the action. He went deeper. He said, if you are angry with your brother, you shall be subject to the judgment. And he pointed out that murder begins with anger in the heart. And then again in Mark chapter 7 talking about things that defile the man. The Pharisees were worried about washing their hands in a certain way before eating and they had all these complex washing rituals. Jesus told them it's not what goes in that defiles the man but what comes out. He said it's from the heart that evil thoughts come and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries. What's the old saying? Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Sin begins in the heart. Murder begins in the heart. One commentator gives a powerful illustration about this. Back in 1931, one of America's most wanted criminals was a man by the name of Two-Gun Crowley. Two-Gun Crowley was charged with a string of brutal homicides, including the killing of police officers. That spring, he was finally captured, and after a fierce gun battle in his girlfriend's apartment, police were able to kill him. When they went over to his body, there was a note he had written, a blood-spattered note. And on that note he had written, under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind heart. A heart that would never do anybody any harm. Well, Two-Gun was wrong. He did do people harm. He was a killer. He was a cold-blooded killer. He was deceived. And what's Jeremiah say about that? Jeremiah says the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can trust it? Sin, the sin of murder begins in the heart. Even people who have never physically committed a murder and never would do such a thing may in fact be guilty in their heart of this very thing. Now folks, this morning as we wrap things up, I doubt very seriously as I bring this message to a close that I am preaching to murderers 
murderers in the outward sense. I don't know. We might have somebody hiding among us. I kind of doubt it though. But again, to quote the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3, everyone who hates his brother is what? A murderer. 1 John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That kind of brings it home, doesn't it? To everybody's level. Do you have hatred in your heart? Proverbs 12.18 says, If you speak rash words, harsh words... Hateful words against someone, it is like literally running somebody through with a sword. Proverbs 12, 18. The reformer Martin Luther gave still another application that hits closer to home. What if somebody were to come knocking on your door in the dead of winter, and they were starving to death, and they had no clothes, or a few clothes. And in the words of James, in James chapter 2, you said, Brother, I hope you stay warm and well fed, but you turn that person out into the night without helping them. You may possibly have turned that person away to die. Are you accountable? Am I accountable in some way or fashion if that's the outcome? Scripture would say yes. We have an accountability. We need to remember that everybody we meet has worth. They are created in the image of God and they have dignity and value. Everybody. You see, the Bible peels back all of these layers to get to the heart of the issue. But folks, the good news is, Jesus hanging on the cross and saying to those who were taking his life, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want you to imagine that. The good news of the gospel is that there is Forgiveness and there is salvation for even those who have committed murder. Need I say that again? There is forgiveness and salvation for even those who have committed murder. All of us today should examine our words... Our emotions, especially anger. And we should ask ourselves if we ever do anything to work against this culture of death. Do we just go right along with this culture of death and not do anything to try to make a difference? Or do we try to be salt and light against this culture of death and to do something about it? As somebody once said, all it takes for evil to prosper is for good men to do nothing. In this culture of death, what are some of the ways 
that you can work against murder. Let's pray together. Lord, we are lawbreakers. We are lawbreakers and we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for when we've not been salt and light in this culture of death. Lord, may we be a people who want May we not be a people who want to see how far we can push the boundaries. May we be like the psalmist who said, Lord, I love thy law. Lord, help us to be examples to those around us. Because indeed, all around us, we see that life is being devalued. We'll go home today, and by the end of the day, reading our news feed, we will see where some, somewhere somebody's been murdered. Lord, we see every day what the abortion industry is doing. And while for years and years and years abortions were declining, we've seen recently where we're told that they're once again on the rise. Lord, thank you for those in the church who work at the crisis pregnancy centers. But Lord, again, whatever way we can help people to see the value of life, that life matters because we're made in your image, I pray that we would be a voice for the innocent, that we would be a voice for the suffering. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.